Well, dear friends, we're in Luke chapter 11 and verses 45 through 54. This morning, let's go ahead and read this passage that we have before us. In the last passage, Jesus gave three woes to the Pharisees, and in this passage, He will give three woes to the lawyers or the experts of the law. Let's begin there in verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to the, you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. And he went away from there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in the wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. This is um, a very humorous beginning to this passage. You have Jesus who has been invited to this dinner at the house of one of the Pharisees, and he intentionally offended those that are there. He began to speak these woes against the Pharisees. Perhaps this lawyer was in agreement somewhat with what he said, and he was all right with him saying certain things to the Pharisees. Perhaps he thought the Pharisees weren't quite what they should be, but this lawyer heard what he said, and he says something very incredible in verse 45. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. It's, it's almost as though he says, but wait a second, I resemble some of the remarks that you have just said. And yet Jesus responds with woes. And yet Jesus responds basically saying, no, you don't know the half of it. You as lawyers have your own issues. Jesus was an invited guest to the house of one of the Pharisees. There are multiple times in this gospel where Jesus is invited into someone's house. And he is not the calm and quiet guest that just keeps to himself. He speaks truth to those who had invited him to dinner. And he is intentionally offensive to those at this dinner. He is intentionally prodding them theologically. He's intentionally pointing out theological errors that they have. And these are people that were adversaries of Jesus, but in some ways you find that they had respect for him. There's many times where you see Pharisees or teachers of the law speaking respectfully to Jesus. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He begins by calling him teacher. This is one of the teachers in Israel. This was a famed teacher. This was a respected and wealthy teacher in Israel, and he's calling Jesus teacher. He's calling Jesus a, a rabbi, and we have the lawyer here calling Jesus teacher. This is one of the top theologians 
here in Israel calling Jesus a teacher. Jesus doesn't care. Jesus is not concerned with their respect. He's not concerned with their accolades. They are missing the gospel. They are leading people astray. They are adding to the law of God, and in adding to the law of God, they think they are increasing the depth of the law of God. They're making it more significant and higher. They're raising the standard of righteousness in the law of God. But in adding to the law of God, they actually are diminishing the law of God. These lawyers in particular were a people within the group of the Pharisees. They were a special group within the Pharisees that taught the law of God. You're familiar with the Pharisees. They had risen up during the intertestamental period of time. They had risen up during the time um, when the people were in captivity and they were brought back into the land. And there were various Greek and Roman encroachments that began to come into Jewish culture. And the Pharisees were there, and they were specifically trying to deal with these encroachments. They were trying to deal with how it is that they are to live according to the law of God within this world around them that is living in a way that is inconsistent with the law of God. And you see this um, talked about, you see them discussed in First and Second Maccabees. Those are historical books, not biblical books. But as far as history goes, they are relevant and helpful in this uh, respect. And they were basically the everyman's theologian. They were those that didn't come out of the aristocracy, but rather they were the common man that were seeking to lead the people along, to teach them how to follow the law of God, living in a world that's living contrary to the law of God. But they went beyond what the law required. They did a few interesting things. They tried to come up with very specific rules that everyone had to follow at all times, in all places, in regard to the law of God. And it was basically, in some ways, a one-size-fits-all. I'll go into the details as we continue to walk forward. But although they might have had good intentions, all right, maybe some of them began well, and they thought maybe it just began with someone asking them a question, and they answer that question, and they have this answer here wisely how to apply the law of God, and someone asks them something over here, and they, okay, well, this is how you would follow this particular law, and then they begin to add these one after another, and you end up with something that's not someone wisely trying to think through a situation, wisely trying to apply the law of God in a particular place, at a particular time, in a particular person's life, but rather, you just have this very large list of rules that you're just trying to apply in all places at all times. And what they had done is they had added to the law in, in such respect, raising what the law required, but actually diminishing the requirements of the law because it was so focused on the outside and not on the inside that they were putting burden on top of burden on the people. And that's something that Jesus emphasizes in this passage, that they are overburdening the people. And this is where the lawyers come in. The lawyers perhaps had in some ways uh, participated in this, but the lawyer was a special kind of Pharisee. These were the academics, the theological guides amongst the Pharisees, and they were there to help people to apply not necessarily just the law, but these rules that had been placed upon the law, that these were very detailed, these were very complicated. And they had basically this pharisaical rule book of the Mosaic law, and then they, they needed lawyers to come and to decipher this and to help people to even understand what it is that these rules were saying. You not only had comments 
on the law, but then you had comments on the comments, and we'll get into some of those details as we work through this passage. But we have Jesus, we have Jesus giving these woes to the Pharisees, and then we have the lawyer saying, wait a second, we resemble that remark, and Jesus responds with three woes. And the first woe that Jesus charges the lawyers with is that they lack power in their religion. They lack power in their religion. Their religion does not have the ability to solve man's problem with sin. Their religion does not have the ability to make them right with God. They have lowered the law in such a way that they feel like they are meeting it through these particular requirements, and yet they're adding these restrictions upon other people that are actually distracting them in their relationship with God, and they have what has become a false religion. This false religion of rabbinic Judaism that rose up during the intertestamental period and then continued into the centuries after Christ's ascension and continues even now to this day. So let's look there at verse 36 in Luke 11. Jesus says, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your own fingers. Let's think about the law of God. What can the law of God do? Can your obedience to the law of God make you right with God? Can it heal your relationship with God for violating His law? Absolutely not. That's not within the power of the law. It cannot make you right with God through your own obedience. But there's many very important things that the law can do. The law can expose sin. It can show how it is that you are to live, and then you can look at your life and see the ways in which you are living contrary to this. That is a very, very important aspect of the law. That is why the law must be preached rightly and fully. It must not be diminished in any way, because if you're looking at a lower standard of the law, you can look and say, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I can do this. I'm covered. That's what all of man's religions do. They lower the law of God in such a way that man looks and says, what a good boy am I. Look at what I'm able to do. But in seeing God's law rightly and seeing the mirror of the law of God before you, you see the ways in which you aren't keeping this. God has commanded this. I am not keeping this. It is God's standard. And that leads you to have no trust in yourself, your own efforts, your own goodness, but rather to trust in the means that God has given, which is the finished work of Christ Jesus. And this is not just how you enter the kingdom of God, but it is how you live within the kingdom of God and continually trusting in Christ Jesus, continually believing upon Him, continually even trusting upon God for the strength to walk in obedience to His law. God's law, as great as it is, there's an entire psalm dedicated to the law of God. And in some ways, it's speaking of Scripture as a whole, and in some ways, it's speaking of the law in particular. But God's law, as great as it is, doesn't have the ability to, to save you. No amount of your own obedience is going to change your standing with God. And this is where they begin to become misguided. They did a few things that were errors. They tried to create very strict rules that applied in all situations. And I'll get into some of these details. It's really incredible when you read some of these writings 
in rabbinic Judaism, and you read them, and you almost begin to think, how did that happen? How did they come up with that rule in particular? But for us as Christians as well, we, we have to be mindful that obedience to the law of God is something that must flow out from the heart. And it doesn't mean that there's no standards, there's no right or wrong whereby you can demonstrate and see that there is an error, but we can begin to get into errors when we begin to create standards and try to apply them without using wisdom and try to think through what we are doing. I want to give you an example um, that I experienced when I was in, in middle school, and it was, it was something that stuck with me all these years, and it only lasted about a week. But within the school, they became concerned that students weren't properly following the dress code. And in particular, they were concerned over the length of the dresses, the skirts, and the shorts that the females were wearing within the school. It didn't apply to the males because all of us had to wear pants, but they were concerned over how the females were dressing, and some of them weren't quite following the rules and the standards that they had given. So they sought to create an objective standard that everyone would have to follow. And I don't remember what it was at this point. It, was, it involved a, a, a ruler or a yardstick, and it was so many inches you know, below or above the knee. That doesn't really matter. But the fact is they tried to apply this with everyone within the middle school, and they began just to have teachers send people down during the day whenever they didn't think they were following it. It was distracting the vice principal. He was becoming overwhelmed by the amount of people that were coming down to his office throughout the day because the teachers were even emphasizing this rule in ways that were inconsistent. So they decided, okay, we're going to crack down on this. We're really going to deal with this problem that we're having. And so at the very beginning of the day, when we showed up to school in homeroom, they would immediately look, and if there's anyone that the homeroom teacher thought was breaking the rules, they were all sent out in the hallway, lined up on the lockers, and the assistant principal began to walk up and down the hallway with a yardstick, making a determination of who was following and who was not following this. And it became overwhelmingly distracting to the school, such that some of the um, parents were coming up and they were saying, look, you're making these rules. And like I was out for hours last night trying to find clothes for my daughter that's a volleyball player and she's six foot tall and she's not able to meet the standard. And we began to philosophize within the homeroom that, that those mornings as we had sometimes 30 minutes just kind of sitting about and philosophizing. We had to say, you know, this standard's not even fair. You're making this standard. Some people are four foot tall. Some people are six foot tall. You're putting this same standard with everyone that is there. They began to ask the questions like, well, wait a second. The, the clothes that y'all give to us in, in PE don't even follow this particular standard. And it got to a point that they just said, okay, this is it. Someone's just going to have to make a, a judgment call. We're not going to be able to walk up and down. We're not going to be able to line people up in the halls anymore. They're not going to walk around with yardsticks making these particular rules, trying to put everyone in the same objective standard. And I give this illustration because the requirements that were there were, were kind of really minor. I mean, it, it came from a good intention that you need to go to school, you need to dress in a way that is respectful to yourself and to other people, you need to walk in a way that is respectful to the school. Um, but the rules and way that, the ways in which they tried to apply them were very disastrous and overwhelmingly distracted from why anyone was even there in the first place. And that was finally what happened. Someone from administration said, this is a distraction. This is, 
this is absurd. You're, you're just going to have to make a determination whether or not someone is in line with the dress code or not, and that's just going to have to be it. But I want you to think about the rules that we see within rabbinic Judaism in regard to following the Sabbath day and keep it holy, because the rules that they tried to implement in my junior high at this time were like child's play compared to the details that we find in trying to keep this law, the fourth commandment, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Leon Morris makes this statement, and he's going to give a quote out of the Shabbat in uh, 10 and verse 3, but it says this, it says, on the Sabbath they taught a man may not carry a burden, now this is the quote, in his right hand or in his left hand, in his bosom or on his shoulder, but he may carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot or with his mouth or with his elbow or in his ear or in his hair or in his wallet, carried mouth downwards, and they have to make that distinction because I guess you might cram too much in your wallet and, and then put it in your pocket. And so if you turn it downwards, you can't put too much in there. Um, or in between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal. That's just about 10 and verse 3. I'm not making this up. This is really what they wrote. This is really what they taught. Now, someone's going to have to unpack all of this. This is why they needed lawyers, so they could explain to the person why you can't carry something in your hand, but then it can be on the top of your hand, or it can be in the hem of your shirt. You can imagine some people were making very large hems in their shirts to get around some of these regulations. Leon Morris continues, multiply this by all the regulations of the law, and ordinary people have a burden that is beyond bearing even to know what they might do or what they might not do. But there's also a multitude of loopholes for a lawyer who knew the traditions which enabled him to do pretty well what he wished. And that's how you have some of these rules here. I would not be surprised if some of these lawyers had special shirts that they wore on the Sabbath day so they could cram a bunch of stuff into the hems of, of their shirts. This is something that Jesus mentions here. You don't even lift your finger. You put all these burdens on other people and you don't even lift your finger. This comes from a group of writings. This is called the Mishnah. And some ra rabbis actually believe that it was superior to Scripture. I'm going to give you an incredible quote here on the, the Mishnah, um, these other writings that are there. Uh, this is a quote from Joseph Barclay. He says this in his um, introduction to the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is a, a series of writings um, and commentaries upon the Old Testament law, and also commentaries on those commentaries. That's how complicated it was. You not only have a commentary on the Word of God, but then you've got to have a commentary on that commentary, because we've got to get this as detailed as we possibly can get it so we can apply it in all situations, everywhere, without any concern, and it needs to be very clear that it can just be declared at all times whether or not someone is keeping this or not keeping it. Joseph Barclay says this, it will be observed that these treaties contain the particular mode of thought against which the deepest woes of the New Testament are denounced. You very much can see Jesus' concern when I read that out of the Shabbat, where you see these details and rules that were placed upon people such that it's a distraction even from the Sabbath day. It's a distraction from this day that God has given for rest, God has given for worship, but instead you're just placing upon people all these rules that are a distraction. 
says this, well, at the same time, they afford much information concerning the inner life of the Jews at the period of our Savior's sojourn upon the earth. Hence, the reason is apparent why the Talmud is either undervalued or overvalued according to the reader's standpoint. Again, the Talmud is this collection of writings. Speaking generally, however, it has proved injurious to those who have submitted to its authority and bowed to the dictum that, and this is a quote that many of the rabbis would say, that the Bible is like water, speaking of the Old Testament, and the Mishnah is like wine. The Mishnah is a commentary on the Bible. And then the Gemara is like spiced wine. And so you have the Bible over here. The Mishnah comments on the Bible. And then the Gemara over here is commenting on the Mishnah in such that this is how they were viewing these things, that the Bible wasn't clear enough in what God required. So we needed to comment on that, but yet we needed a commentary on the commentary so that we could, we could really understand what God wanted us to do. And it's in that that they found the greatest blessing in their religion, this very strict set of rules such that you find these people are primarily not even studying the Bible or even concerned with the Bible, but rather they're concerned about this commentary on a commentary of the Bible. You don't have to use wisdom in considering your life and your situation, how you would glorify God in following a particular commandment. You merely need to see if you're following the details of the rabbinic tradition. Is it a yes or a no? Would you just tell me what it is that I need to do here? Instead of upholding the law, they're putting something else in the place of the law. And instead of raising the law, as people that add to the law think they are doing, they're actually diminishing it. They're, in fact, lowering it. David Gooding makes this point. So complicated were these rules and regulations that one would have needed to be a highly qualified lawyer oneself to know whether one was breaking the law or not. And a serious attempt to keep the rules turned moral and religious duty into an intolerable burden. And it was a complete distraction from God's intention of the law where you could look and you could see what is required by God rightly. Rather, they look at rabbinic tradition, they say, do I check the box or not? Am I good or am I not? But rather, if you look at God's law rightly, it will give you a proper understanding of who you are. See, this is the very opposite of what Jesus offers. Jesus offers a, that which is without burden. Let's consider Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. So in, in contrast to these rules and regulations that were there within the Mishnah and the Gemara of these rabbinic teachers, Jesus says this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These teachers adding to the law didn't raise the law. They lowered it. Why is Jesus' burden easy and light? Is it because Jesus has a lower version of the law than these teachers did? No, it's just the opposite. You see, in looking to the law of God and you see that you don't meet that standard, even on your best day, you have fallen short word and thought and deed in some way, you see your need of Christ. You see your need of what Jesus has done. You see your need of what Christ has accomplished. And you see Christ as the one who has fulfilled the law in every way, as one who has taken upon himself the fullness of the consequences of sin for all who will trust in him. And that is a removal of that burden 
That is the burden that is light. I am not seeking to follow the law of God in order to raise my standing with God, in order to have a standard of righteousness before Him that I am keeping, whereby to make myself right before God. No, instead, I am trusting upon Christ. I am leaning upon Christ. Christ has bore that burden on my behalf. Christ has bore that burden for you, dear Christian. Dear friend, don't leave here trusting in your own efforts, in, in your own deeds, in your own goodness, in, in man's religion. This in no way is diminishing the law for the Christian and saying, it doesn't matter how you live. Of course it matters how you live. Of course God cares about how you live. Of course God cares about sin. That's why Jesus came. That's why Christ died. That's why he's given you life. That's why he's given you new eyes and a new understanding and a new heart that you can walk in obedience. Rabbinic Judaism didn't offer this to the people. Rabbinic Judaism offered them no solution for their sin. Rabbinic Judaism offered them no power over sin. It was strictly man's rules. These rules in Judaism in no way changed anyone's relationship with God. It may have influenced your relationship with the rabbi. It may have influenced your relationship with the community. It definitely influenced Jesus' relationship because he intentionally offends them. He goes out to eat with them. He intentionally does not wash his hands according to their tradition. And I've showed you other times where it is perfectly acceptable for someone to follow someone's tradition in some way. We saw Paul following certain traditions for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of having an opportunity to share the gospel. Jesus intentionally does not follow their traditions at this time for the purpose of offending them so that they will see that he does not bow the need to their tradition. He does not bow the need to the standard of righteousness that they have created. They are what Jesus calls blind guides. They are blind guides. They don't have true religion. They don't have true understanding of the law of God. They have written and studied so much on this subject, but they have missed it in the very, very basic, basic levels. Jesus says this in Luke 6 and verse 39. He told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? That was them, their blind guides. They had no ability to help someone in their lostness. They had no ability to help someone in the midst of their sin. Osborne makes this point. One commentator, he says, they were laying emphasis on the trivial and they were neglecting the essential. Laying emphasis on the trivial and neglecting the essential, placing these burdens upon others, but yet they wouldn't lift their finger, placing these burdens on others, but yet they would create the laws in such a way that they would have loopholes to get around and do whatever it is they wanted to do. We see this, this picture of God's law in Micah 6 and verse 8. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Well, let's make some comments on that passage. Let's make some comments on the law of God as it is communicated there through the prophet Micah. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before the Lord. Which man says, well, that's, that's really low. Which, who is who's saying, that's, I got that. This is easy. Let's move on to bigger and better laws. Let's move on to bigger and 
better things. I, I don't think so. That, that's the very opposite of humility. No, no. To, to, to see what is required even in what God commands there is to see the ways in which we, we don't meet that standard, that we don't rightly follow that, that we need one who would act on our behalf, one who would come before us. It's so, so crucial, dear friends, that, that we, are, we are mindful, and, and even pastors, religious leaders, that they're, they, they are mindful in the application of the law of God, that we're mindful not to be like these lawyers and begin to add rules on people that God has not required. It is a temptation. There is a temptation that is there. There is an authority that you have in speaking to people, but our authority must begin and end with what the Word of God says or what can be reasonably inferred from the Word of God is how we would also see it within our, within our confession. And there's, there's very good things that you can do in your life. There's even reasonable things that may be an outliving of your Christian life that I am not to walk here behind the pulpit and then begin to demand everyone else to follow them. Let me, let me give you a quick example as, as an illustration that, that you might think of. And you may hear this and think, well, maybe you should have done that, Pastor. But a couple years ago, I'm sure you remember this, it was, it was all the rage in the media at the time when it happened, but the, the department store Target had made a rule and they allowed, um, I never saw it happen, but they made a rule that said, men can go into the women's restroom, women can go into the men's restroom. And it was very controversial. It was, it, was, it was a big deal. And us and our family, we said, that's insane. This is really shocking. Why would they make such a rule? And we said, you know what? We're not going to shop at Target anymore. We didn't shop at Target for a few years after the, that rule. It wasn't a particular burden for me necessarily because I didn't really care that much about shopping at Target. I think Janice liked shopping there more, more than I did. Um, and so we, we followed through with that. And we, we didn't shop there for a few years just as a as a boycott, and I think maybe in some ways it affected their stock just a little bit, and now it's kind of forgotten about, and people have kind of moved on from that. But here's what didn't happen. I didn't get up behind the pulpit on Sunday morning and then demand all of you do the exact same thing. I mean, I could have made an argument. I could have said, look, this is, this is a violation of decency. This is possibly a violation of the seventh commandment. This is, these, I could make an argument as to why we should do this. I could have made an argument and said, look at how we could influence the culture and we could make these changes by putting this economic pressure on this particular, um, this particular company. I didn't do that. I didn't require that from any of you. It would have been inappropriate for me to do that. We have um, examples in the Scriptures of Paul saying that people could even eat meat that was sacrificed to idols within, within temples. The reality was the Christians were free not to eat that meat. They weren't required to go to the market and buy uh, meat that came from the Zeus temple. In fact, they could probably make a good argument as to why they might not want to do that. Someone might see me going around the temple over there and buying that meat, or um, perhaps I might lead someone astray by going after that meat, or they might say, I don't want to support that temple. Do you know what they're doing in there? Do you know this is a false god? There were all kinds of reasons why people could have said, this is not something that I'm going to do. But it wasn't appropriate for them to demand that from someone else, unless the reasoning in going there was a sinful reasoning. If someone were to say, because this was the idea at that time, is that someone, they, they believed superstitiously that the meat sacrificed at these various temples had in it certain properties, certain benefits to you. 
you could go to a certain one and maybe it would help you with fertility and another one may help you uh, to have more strength. Another one may help you to, you know, be more diligent and focused in your job. And these are the superstitious ideas, but the reality, it wasn't true. Those gods don't exist. This meat was sacrificed, but it's just meat. The properties of the meat haven't actually changed. And so you were free to go. But if someone said, you know, I, I want to go and to get that meat because this is going to help us in this superstitious way, or I want to go over here and I want to support this because it's, it's supporting the, the temple over here. Well, now you have a sinful reason, and that's why you have Paul in other places speak against these practices where people had the wrong intentions in mind. So, the thing is true as well. You could shop at certain stores that have ungodly um, things that they support, all right? But you're, you're free to go and to shop at certain stores. There's no way that we could… I don't know if you've ever tried this. If you ever tried to say, I only want to shop at stores that have Christian values. You end up with Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby, and then Chick-fil-A puts out a social media post, and it kind of blows up even that. Now I can't get a chicken sandwich. And so these are things that can be complicated if your intention in shopping at that store was to say, well, I want to shop here because they support LGBTQ rights, or they, they, they're affirming. Well, now you're into sinful activity. Now you're into errors in your motivation. But if you're shopping there just because they have these items and these products, that's your choice. You're free to shop there. You're free not to shop there. You're free to have a boycott. You're free not to have a boycott. But we must be cautious, even as Christian leaders, in placing these additional burdens on people. And there's a long history in this country of leaders trying to place all kinds of burdens on people, whether it be boycotting Disney or all kinds of other things where it's not our place to go and to be that specific with rules and regulations on what is required. And so we can look at these requirements here in rabbinic Judaism, and we can very much look down and say, oh, that's so crazy. But if we're not careful, we can begin to create and add to God's law ourselves if we're not cautious. Let's look at the second woe. Let's look at the second woe. And just as a warning, I spent more time on the first point intentionally than I will on the other two woes, so they won't all be the same length. But the first one is this hypocrisy in religion. And we see this specifically in the fact that they are building these tombs for the prophets that were killed by their forefathers, those whom Jesus is saying were actually like them. They're thinking themselves better than those that came before them in venerating and celebrating these prophets. But in actuality, Jesus is saying, you are just like them, and you're participating in their death by creating, decorating, and memorializing these tombs. Let's look at Luke 11, 47 through 51. It says, Woe to you, for you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. We have we have Jesus here giving very specific examples, going all the way back to Abel and then to a prophet named Zechariah who was, who was killed in, in the temple. I do not believe this is the Zechariah, the prophet in the Bible. I won't 
go through the trouble of explaining that, but we see Jesus referring to a different Zechariah when you read this similar passage in the book of Matthew. But he is saying that you are like these persecutors. You and your behavior think that you are different from them, but you are actually the same as them. You're walking in the same line as them. Leon Morris has an excellent quote. He says, it is always easier to honor dead saints than living ones. It is difficult to stand before someone who is speaking the truth of God to you and pointing out the particular errors. It's more difficult to stand there and look to that person than it is to have this idea of those that have come before, to memorialize missionaries and prophets and saints of the past. And this false religion that they practiced had not the ability to save them because it had no power. Their false religion lacked the gospel. It had a poor understanding of the law so that people didn't rightly see the ways in which they weren't keeping God's law, and it didn't rightly communicate the gospel, the need to trust in the Messiah to come, the need to trust in Christ alone. Religion without the gospel lacks power. It doesn't matter how much that religion says that they venerate saints, that they venerate prophets, that they venerate those that came before. It's completely irrelevant. If it doesn't have the gospel, it doesn't have the power to save. And in not having the gospel, it's not going to rightly communicate the law either. So both of those things have to go hand in hand. In hearing the law rightly, you understand your need of Christ. And in seeing your need of Christ, you turn to Christ and trust in Him. We see Paul emphasize the power of the gospel in Romans 1 in verses 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a crucial passage that helps us to understand the power of the gospel, the the need of the gospel. It is pointing to the righteousness of God, God's goodness, God's holiness, the importance of seeing who God is, the importance of having that unpacked, that God is not just like you. God is not someone who, who just needs a little help just like you. God is God. He is sovereign. He is holy. He is good. He is righteous. And in seeing who God is, you rightly see your need for Christ. In their veneration of these prophets who came before them, I can't think of a better example when we think of the lawyers and rabbinic Judaism nowadays than Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism honors dead saints, but rather it just creates distractions. They are so focused on memorializing relics and pieces and areas, setting up so-called churches in areas where there aren't even any Christians, but rather people would just go to this building because something supposedly happened in this area. Martin Luther says this, one of his comments in his pamphlet about some of the relics, he says, one could build a whole house using all the parts of the true cross that are scattered around the world. Throughout the world, there are little pieces of wood that people claim are parts of the cross that Jesus was crucified on. I I read this in another place. Another commentator said, if you gathered all of the pieces of wood that people are claiming to be parts of the cross, most of which is in Roman Catholicism, this cross would weigh over 3,000 pounds. There is an obsession 
with superstition and relics. There are pieces of Noah's Ark that people believe they have some kind of certain power. They believe they have nails, spears. There's the Shroud of Turin. Of course, there's multiple spears. There's, there's many, many nails. Um, they believe they have the hand of St. Stephen. Some of these get really disgusting. The thigh bone of St. Gregory, as though that's going to have some special efficacious religious power for you. Pieces of the manger where Jesus was laid down to rest. People have that. Diapers of Jesus. And that was a new one. I didn't know that people were venerating and holding on to diapers that Jesus supposedly was using. The idea of this has lasted for this many centuries is really astounding. St. Paul's chains, the finger of St. Thomas, of course, the one that he put in the side of Jesus. Tongues of saints. There are tongues of saints. I think it's St. Gregory. They went and exhumed his tongue and, and, and preserved it there in the church for people to go. And you don't believe this? Go Google. Look this up yourself. It's, it's encased in gold and glass, this, this tongue. Saint, blood of, there's another place, the blood of saints. And supposedly three times a year it turns back into a liquid, a severed feet. And they're, they're so meticulous in how they care for these relics and these pieces and these details and all this activity, you have these veneration of saints, but not for the gospel in this religion. Not for the gospel in this false religion of Roman Catholicism, not rightly applying the law of God. No, there's all these other rules and regulations that they put forward and don't rightly communicate the law of God. Because if you saw the law of God rightly and you're in Roman Catholicism, you would be like Martin Luther you would be anxious. You would be frustrated. You would be driving the um, you would be driving the person crazy to whom you're supposed to confess your sins to. Although they claim to support the Bible, they would have been involved in killing the prophets and the apostles in that time. I can't think of a better parallel nowadays to these that Jesus is talking to. The entire religion of Roman Catholicism is based upon lowering the raw law of God and creating a standard whereby man can meet that standard. Even if you're humbly saying, well, I won't go to heaven, but I'll go to purgatory, and I will just be cleansed in purgatory until I go to heaven, you're still putting yourself forward as though you can meet this standard. It's completely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they have been one of the greatest persecutors of the church. They have been one of the greatest persecutors of true gospel. We see this codified, do we not, in the Council of Trent. Think of some of these statements. I know some of you are familiar with these. We've read them before. They're in our new member class. But Trent, Session 6, Canon 9, they say this, If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. They just anathematized the Apostle Paul. They anathematized the book of Romans. It's incredible that these words are contained and still held to be true as Roman Catholic doctrine. Don't let someone lie to you. This is in their catechism. This is within the Council of Trent. This is the Council of Trent that met in opposition to the Reformation. 
Trent Session 6 and Canon 11, if anyone says that men are justified either by the imputation of righteousness of Christ alone or by the remission of sins alone to the exclusion of the grace and love that is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and is inherent in them, or even that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. Once again, anathematizing the gospel anathematizing the imputed righteousness of Christ. No, they say we must have infusion. There must be your own righteousness that is being mixed in there as well. Trent Session 6 and Canon 24, if anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and also increased before God by good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and the signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of its increase, let him be anathema. They just anathematized Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 8 through 10. No, the, the righteousness increased? That's a bold statement. What a bold statement there, that I can somehow increase the righteousness that is I have received from Christ. That Christ is not perfect. Christ is just that boost that got me started. I need to finish this off through my own efforts. I need to finish this off by going to Mass and by going to buying indulgences and by going to confession. Lastly, Trent, Session 6, Canon 30. If anyone says that the guilt remitted to every penitent sinner after the grace of justification has been received and that the debt of eternal punishment is so blotted out that there remains no debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance of the kingdom of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. They anathematized salvation by grace and through faith. They anathematized Jesus' statement on the cross that it is finished. It's not quite finished yet. Jesus needs to die again every time we have a mass. And so the priest can command him to die again spiritually for the sins of those that are attending that mass. This is an incredibly complicated religion that is contrary to the word of God. Although the Roman Catholic Church will venerate the saints, they stand in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church, just like these lawyers and Pharisees, fall in line with what William Barclay says, the only prophets they admired were dead. J.C. Ryle says this, when a man can see no beauty in living saints, but much in dead saints, his soul is in a very rotten state. Lastly, Goodling says this, more guilty than their ancestors because of the rejection of the greater prophets and apostles. Rightly and justly then, vengeance would fall on this generation for the murders of all the prophets from the beginning of the world because they walked in the same line as those that came before them. False religion hates true religion. If God's law is not able to save you, why do you think that adding to God's law is going to save you? No, we must remember what Paul writes in Romans 8 and verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That is what Christ accomplished. He met the righteous requirement of the law, the high standard of the law, which we could not keep, he kept. 
Lastly, in closing, we see this third woe, this lack of knowledge that they had in verses 52 through 54 of Luke 11. Jesus says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who are entering. And he went away from there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him and to speak about many things, lying in the wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. They were able to be teachers themselves because they didn't understand these elemental principles. They were seen as teachers, but they didn't understand the very basic, basic aspects. These men were continued to be the, the great theologians of the time, and they didn't see that these scriptures that they studied pointed to Christ pointed to the necessity of the Messiah, pointed to the great one who would come, the child of the woman, the the greater Moses that would come forward, who is Christ Jesus. They failed to see that they pointed to Christ. John 5 and 39, Jesus says this, you search the Scriptures because they they, because you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They thought they knew the Scriptures, and they thought to emphasize these minute details, that there were, were there additions to the Scriptures, the additions of others that came before them. And so they lost sight of that which pointed to Christ, that which emphasized the need of Christ. That is that is so, so crucial and important of the law of God that in seeing it rightly, you see your need of Christ. That the totality of the Scriptures point to Christ Jesus. Is that not what happened on the road to Emmaus when Christ was standing there with the disciples? And it says this in Luke 24, 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. They all pointed to him. And like Jesus here spoke to those that were in error, we too must be willing to speak against that which is false religion. Those that are speaking false doctrine, those that have a false gospel and a false understanding of the law of God. Jesus was willing to compromise the relationship with these Pharisees in order to speak truth to them. You must be willing to do the same. No, you must not be rude. You must not be unkind. You must not be unloving. But you must not value the opinion of someone else to the degree that you will not speak truth to them. That is true love, to speak truth to someone regardless of the consequences. There must be fidelity over friendship. Jesus chose fidelity to truth rather than friendship. And we see this this emphasis given multiple times in an encouragement that is given by Paul to speak to those that are in error. Romans 16 and verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. To be mindful of these things, not just to go along with the flow as though everything is is just fine as it is, but to be willing to speak truth, to be willing to separate, to depart 
2 Timothy 3.5, Paul gives this guidance. He, he speaks of them as having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Again, the lawyers and their religion, rabbinic Judaism, they speak of these things, but they are in error. They have an appearance of godliness. It looks religious. That is, all of man's religion will look religious in some way, but it denies the power it denies the power. And where is the power? The power is in the gospel. Your religion removes the gospel. It removes the power of God for salvation. The response to the woes of Christ should have been a woe to self. The response to the woes of the Pharisees and the woes of the lawyers should have been a woe to self. They should have been like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Where he says, woe is me. When he, he's, he's there before God. He's there before the glory of God. He's seeing the magnificence of the glory of God such that he's able to receive. We understand this. But he says this. He sees this and doesn't think, how great am I? What a great job I've done. He says, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Their response to the woes that Jesus gives them should have been a woe to themselves. It should have been, a, 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 it should have been clear to them that they are falling short in this area. But dear friends, I, I, I pray for you. I trust that you would be mindful as well of these legalistic rules that men will place upon religion these ways in which they will diminish the law of God by, by adding to it in some way, or they will try to make specific rules that can't be consistently followed in all places and all time, even though in certain places it may be a very consistent and reasonable way of living out a particular law of God. It requires wisdom on our part. It requires wisdom on our part. We must not lose sight of the purpose of the law in pointing us to Christ in our need to Christ, our need of the gospel, the power of salvation that God has given whereby we can be saved, where we can have peace with God, where we can be in a right standing, where we can ultimately walk in obedience to God's law by His grace and for His glory through the power that He grants to us, through His Spirit that has given us life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful for the gospel of Christ Jesus, the goodness of this gospel that you have given to us, that demonstrated, that showed your mercy and your grace, your kindness and your love. We thank you for Christ and the goodness that he has given to us, the blessing that has been granted to us in Christ Jesus. Pray that you would bless us in walking in obedience even after you leave the doors of this building being motivated by Christ and his work and all that he has done. May you bless us as we continue to worship you in this service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.